Our passage is Revelation chapter 3. Let's begin reading at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father, and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this chapter, we have three churches addressed, the last three of the seven churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
In verse 1, we pick up where the Lord speaks of Sardis, and he commands or addresses this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. We spoke earlier about the angel of the churches being either an actual angel or the pastor or elder, the main leader of the local church. He addresses it to them because they are responsible. We see that angels are held responsible for the things that they do by God because he sends them out as ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That's Hebrews 1 verse 14. Angels are also the the ones who oversee the ministry of the church and there are chosen angels such as 1 Timothy 5.21. Chosen angels that are overseeing the ministry of churches and individuals in the church. As well, we know from Scripture that the pastor or elder of the local church is responsible for the people in his church. He himself must live according to whatever he receives from God and then convey that to others. First Timothy 4 and verse 16 says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. As well, James 3, 1. Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. So whether he's addressing an angel or the pastor of the church, we know that they are responsible for what they receive from the Lord and they are to deliver it faithfully to the people of God. Well, in Sardis, Jesus identifies himself in verse 1 as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Earlier in chapter 1 and verse 4, we spoke of how the seven spirits of God may likely be a reference to Isaiah 11 verse 2, especially in the Greek text of Isaiah 11:2, And there, seven attributes of, of the Spirit of God and therefore his ministry are mentioned. The seven attributes and ministry of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold ministry. As well, the seven stars. The seven stars, according to Revelation 1 verse 20, represents the angels of the seven churches. Jesus, therefore, here is saying that he has the power to commission the Spirit of God and he has the power to commission angels to carry out his will. He is the sovereign Lord who is able to accomplish whatever he wants on the earth. Verse 1 continues with the Lord's omniscience. He says, I know your deeds. This is a refrain that we have seen for each of these letters. I know your deeds. Jesus knows what is happening in the church. He knows what's happening in the local churches and because he knows what's happening, and because he is all-powerful, it require all these attributes require our attention. They require our allegiance. They require our obedience. And in this case, he says that he knows that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. They have a name or reputation in Sardis of being alive, of being Christians, of being the church, of being those who represent Christ. However, Jesus says, though they look alive, they are actually spiritually dead. Physically alive and with the name Christ or with the nominal name of Christ upon them, however, 
they are really and truly spiritually dead. They are dead like the prodigal son was dead in Luke 15, 24. They are dead like the wanton widow of 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. And they are dead as people are generally outside of Christ, outside the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. They are actually dead, but they think they are alive. Verse 2, Jesus has the remedy. He says, wake up. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. In their local church, the situation was such that they were not living in accordance with God's will. They had very few believers, and whatever blessings and grace of God that they experienced was about to die. So it was necessary for them to hear this word to wake up, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. They were sleeping. They were spiritually asleep. When they should have been awake and active, they were actually asleep. So they have to be called. They have to be commanded to wake up and to strengthen what remains so that nothing dies. Nothing what remains dies. He says in verse 2, For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. The deeds are not completed. What God expects of them is incomplete. They need to continue. They need to persevere. They need to do the works of God while it is still light, while it is still day, while they still have life. They are supposed to do the works of God while they are alive. But they think that they are doing enough. They think that it is sufficient. They're complacent. They're lazy. They're asleep. They're not doing what they should. Therefore, it's necessary for Jesus to remind them that their deeds are incomplete. They must continue practicing righteousness and truth, obedience to the will of God until the very end. Verse 3 he continues to admonish them. He says, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. He calls them to remember. He calls them to remember because as they were asleep, they were also forgetful. They were forgetful in the things of God. They were pursuing their own will, their own life, and not the life of God. We see in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where Peter speaks of the necessity and the virtue of being reminded. Second Peter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Peter says that he wants them to remember even after he is gone from the earth. He wants them to remember. And the way to remember is by repeated reference. Repetition helps us to remember. And here in Revelation 3.3, 3, he says, Remember what you have received and heard. Whatever word of God that they received, the gospel that they received, they were to remember it and practice it. They were not supposed to just 
remember it in terms of memory power. They were supposed to remember it so that they obey. Whatever they heard, they were responsible for carrying out. As James says in James 1, 19 to 21, that we cannot be merely hearers of the word and not doers because those people delude themselves. We have to not only receive and hear it, but act upon what we have received and heard. Otherwise, whatever is given into our hands and we do not carry it out, we are guilty. We are culpable of not carrying out what is in our hands. Just like the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus gave responsibility to three slaves. Two of the slaves carried out what they received and heard, but the one slave did not carry out what he received and heard. Whatever privileges and graces from God he received, he did not carry it out. So this is the warning here to Sardis. He says, verse 3, keep it and repent. Keep it, obey it. Obey, guard, protect everything that I've given to you, this word of God. It's necessary for you to cling on to it and obey it and repent of any sins. Remember from where you have fallen, where you were and where you are now. Remember the things that God has given and then obey the word of God and repent of sin. Turn away from all evil. Anything that's contrary to the will of God must be rejected and we must cling on to Christ and his word. This is what repentance is. Repentance is not merely having a different opinion or different knowledge about the things of God. It requires a change of life, change of action, change of conduct, change of virtues. Your values are now heavenly and not earthly. They were to repent. Now, a warning in verse 3. If therefore you will not wake up, if they will not wake up, if they will not strengthen the things that remain, if they will not remember, if they will not keep and repent, if they will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to, uh, come upon you. Jesus threatens them here. He says, I will come like a thief. I will come like a thief in the night. As we read in Matthew 24 and 25, the, the parable of the thief, the parable of the slave, and the parable of the ten virgins. In those three parables, Jesus threatened to come at a time when we do not know. To come at a time when we do not know, that is just like a thief. He says he will come like that to those people who refuse to be alert, those people who refuse to pay attention, those people who refuse to be prepared. To those people, he will be like a thief. But to us, if we are ready, if we are alert, if we are prepared, for the return of Christ, living a godly life. He who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the way of the godly. And the godly will not be overtaken like a thief, but the ungodly will be. Even though they think they're Christians, if they are ungodly and living in the church, in the visible church, Christ will come upon them like a thief and he will rob their house and take away whatever they had. Verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, 
and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Though he described the church as generally being apostate or generally being sluggish in their Christian commitment, he says there are a few people, a few in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments. In the scriptures, not soiling the garment is akin to living righteously or having righteousness and living righteously. In fact, in Revelation, both concepts are present. To have white garments, unsoiled garments, is firstly being cleansed by the blood of Christ. Revelation 7.14 And I said to him, My Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The dirty and stained garments that we possess because of our sin are made white by the blood of Christ. And then Revelation 19. Revelation 19 speaks of our righteous deeds as representative in the bright and clean garments. Revelation 19.8 And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This fine linen is bright and clean. So, the few people in Sardis who are walking in white and are worthy, these are the worthy ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven. These have had first their sins forgiven by the blood of Christ, by justification, by grace through faith. They are righteous or made righteous or declared righteous by that fact. And then after their justification, their sanctification or their righteous deeds are manifested in their life and will come to fruition the full extent of the white garments will be experienced and seen in heaven. This is what is meant by Revelation 7:14 and 19:8. And then we are considered worthy only if we have Christ's righteousness and then the grace from that to continue living righteously ourselves. Verse 5. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The overcomers, this is a refrain as well that we've seen in the letters. The overcomers are the ones who endure until the end. These are the ones who have faith, a faith that remains until the end. Matthew twenty four thirteen. He who endures till the end shall be saved. And 1 John 5, 4 to 5, the faith that is the victory and overcomes the, the thing that is the victory and overcomes the world is our faith. It is faith, faith in Christ. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please him. And Romans fourteen twenty three. without faith, uh, everything is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So to overcome we must have faith and enduring faith. And the promise given here is that we will have white garments forever, meaning that when we see the Lord Jesus face to face in eternity, we will be completely free 
from all stains of sin. Sin will no longer be with us. It will no longer torment us. It will no longer tempt us. It will no longer have the sentence of condemnation over us. We will no longer be in that state. We will be completely white and we will be radiant and glorified immortally with a resurrected body forever. He promises too in verse 5 that the enduring faith produces assurance of salvation. He says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. Christ promises that our names will not be erased because we have enduring faith. Sometimes people doubt, if I have faith, is it still possible for God to remove me from the book of life? Is it still possible for God to be displeased with me? And the answer is no. If we have enduring faith, Christ promises we have eternal life. Our name will never be erased from the book of life. He also says in verse 5, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Because we have enduring faith in Christ, Christ himself will confess us before the father. This is similar to Matthew 10:32. Matthew 10:32. Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Because of enduring faith, Christ will confess us before the Father. This is the promise we have. This is the hope we have that our great intercessor who interceded for us on the cross but now intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, he will confess our name before the Father and before his angels. They will not be against us because Christ is for us. The Father and the Father's angels will not be against us. This is the promise and this is the hope he's given to us. Now, who will listen to all this? Who will listen and believe and obey all of this? Verse 6 says, Revelation 3, 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This refrain in the seven letters, he who has an ear, refers to ones who have a spiritual ear. If one has spiritual ears to hear the things of God, he says, You hear it, you understand it, therefore it's necessary for you to carry it out. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You hear it, you receive it, and therefore you act upon it. This only comes to certain ones in the local church. Everyone in the visible local church does not have an ear to hear. He does not have a spiritual ear to hear. Only the ones that God's, uh, God's sovereignty opens up their ears will hear the word of Christ and will act upon it. This is clearly taught here in the scripture. Yes, the visible church, everyone hears the word of God, but not everyone hears the word unto his salvation and unto his sanctification unless God opens the ear. For example... Deuteronomy 29.4 Until this day the Lord has not given you eyes to see, nor ears to hear, or a heart 
to understand. God had not given the vast majority of the people of Israel, Moses says, he had not given them eyes to see or ears to hear or heart to understand. He had not given it. That's why they were constantly rebellious against Moses, because God had not granted to them the repentance that leads to life. He had not granted to them faith in Christ. And in the same way here, Revelation 3.6 reminds us, only those with spiritual ears will hear what the Spirit says. He will hear it and then act upon it. Verse 7, the next church is Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Christ identifies himself as the Holy One. He is holy in that he has no sin. There was no sin or any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 21-25 He was perfectly clean and holy. Hebrews seven twenty six also speaks of him being holy, undefiled, perfect, separated from sinners. He was this way from his conception until his death. Luke one thirty five. when he was conceived, Mary was told, The holy thing begotten shall be called the Son of the Most High. He was holy from the moment of his conception. And even his disciples, such as Peter and the others, they acknowledged this. John 6.69, Peter said, You are the Holy One of God. In Acts 3.14, He is the Holy and Righteous One. Christ is holy. Because He's holy, He has expectations for His followers to be holy as well. Verse 7 also calls Christ true. He calls Himself true. In verse 7, who is true? Jesus said this about Himself in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Jesus is true. That means whatever He says is true. If His nature is truth and His words are truth, that means we cannot say anything to contradict Jesus. Jesus is true. Anyone who has the temerity to contradict Christ is of the devil. The devil is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. But Jesus is true. Everything he says is true. Don't listen to anyone else. If anyone else contradicts Jesus Christ, he is a liar and he's speaking from the devil. Christ also says that he has immense power. He has the key of David. The key of David, the key represents power and authority to do according to his will. He has the key of David, the power to open and close doors, he says. When he shuts the door, no one can open it. When he opens the door, no one can shut it. Well, what is this door? Well, being... Uh, in possession of the key of David means he has this eternal kingdom, the kingdom of David, and the Messiah, being the son of David, will have an eternal kingdom of the seed of David. Messiah is, Christ is, of David's lineage. So Christ has access to this kingdom, and no one else can enter into the kingdom except Christ ordains it. He has this authority to open and close the door according to his own will. He reminds the Philadelphian church of this fact 
so that they trust in his sovereignty and they continue to press on and enter into that eternal kingdom, not lose sight of what lies ahead for them. Verse 8, I know your deeds. He is omniscient. He knows exactly what they experience. He says in verse 8, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, in verse 8, the open door is an open door of ministry. We see this in other places in Scripture, such as Acts 14, 27, a successful open door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, and Colossians 4, 2 to 3. Especially in 1 and 2 Corinthians and Colossians, the apostle makes it clear that he had an open door of ministry to the Gentiles. He had an open door. Therefore, here Christ is telling the church that this open door of ministry is a ministry that will bear fruit. It will bear fruit because no one can shut it. No one can shut this open door of ministry that Christ has given to us. It will bear fruit. There will be people saved from their sins. And those who are saved, they will grow in godliness. They will grow in the things of God. No one can take this ministry away from us because it's in the hands of the sovereign Christ. He acknowledges in verse 8, he's given us this ability to conduct this ministry even though we have little power. Even though we have little power, he's given us this ministry. He acknowledges that we are weak and we are finite, but the power does not reside in us. It resides in Christ. Therefore, we ought to depend on Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Grace, Christ's grace is sufficient for us because His power is perfected in our weakness. We have little power or we are weak, but Christ will help us. He'll help us in the ministry because of His power. It depends on His power so that He receives the glory. But He also will keep an open door for us because we keep his word. Verse 8, you have kept my word. Kept my word. You have obeyed me. Because you have obeyed me, I will honor that obedience with fruit. He will honor the obedience that we carry out by giving us fruit. We will see the benefits of the ministry we carry out. As well, we persevere. He says, you have not denied my name not denied my name. In Matthew 10 and verse 33, he says, But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We are not those who deny Christ, so Christ will not deny us. In fact, since we have not denied us, he ensures that we have fruitful ministry. What we carry out in his name what we carry out faithfully, what we carry out through all the afflictions of the world will bear fruit since we don't deny his name. Then he says what he'll do to our adversaries. Verse 9, Behold, 
I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. The synagogue of Satan. This has been mentioned earlier in chapter 2, verse 9. The synagogue of Satan. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What he means by synagogue of Satan is, there were Jews who believed that they were on the side of God, but actually they were on the side of Satan. There were people who took pride in their heritage, they took pride in their name, they took pride in whatever access to God they had, such as the temple and other rituals. They had this access to God, but they were really not children of God. They claimed to be with God, but actually they were against God. They are liars, he says. They're not true Jews, but they are liars. In Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul addresses this same problem. 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. There he spoke of the dogs, the evil workers, and false circumcision. Verse 2. And in contrast to them, he says, we are the true circumcision. We worship in the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. That's, however, not the way nominal people behave. Nominal people put confidence in the flesh. Nominal people put confidence in their works. They put confidence in their reputation. They put confidence in their name. They don't put confidence in Christ. These are the ones who persecute the true church. The synagogue of Satan, who think that they are on the side of God, they are the ones who persecute the true church. And in the meantime, they show themselves to be liars, to be untruthful, and to be against Christ. Jesus says he'll make these kinds of people, the hypocritical liars, to come and bow down at your feet. He says, I will make them. He will make them bow down to us and make them know that I have loved you. He'll make them bow down to us in, in homage, and he will also make them realize that Christ has indeed loved us. He made a distinction. He loved us, but he gave them justice. They received justice on the day of judgment because they would not receive his love now. We receive love on the day of judgment in contrast to the justice they receive. They receive punishment partly in their humiliation. They have to bow down at our feet. He had, or the scriptures have already spoken of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the scriptures anticipate the day of judgment and our benefit 
on the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? The apostle tells the Corinthians and us too, in verses 2 and 3, that the saints will judge the world and the saints will judge angels. We will judge them both. They will be the ones bowing down before us when we execute a word of judgment that Jesus has allotted for us to execute on his behalf. Verse 10, Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There have been many interpreters, especially in the last hundred years or so, to say that this verse is proof that the church will escape any kind of great turmoil and tribulation on the earth. They take this verse to mean that there will be a rapture of the church, therefore the church will not experience tribulation or some of the worst tribulation or the worst tribulation in world history. I don't take that uh, interpretation. That verse, Revelation 3.10, does not seem to speak, be speaking of that. There is no mention of escape from the world and the rapture or anything like that. In fact, we see within Revelation that, for example, Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, that it is possible for the saints to be here and not be hurt by what God does to the rest of the world. Revelation 9, 4. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This means that if men have the seal of God on their foreheads, they will not be harmed. But the men who do not have the seal of God, they will be harmed. In, therefore, the judgments of Revelation... In, at least from Revelation 9.4, gives at least one example of how God is able to bring punishment and judgment upon the wicked world, but not on the righteous of the world. Another example of this will be from John 17.15. John 17.15. And keep in mind that, that this verse says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Keep you from the hour of testing. What does it mean to keep from? To keep from does not necessarily mean be absent when the punishment comes. For example, Revelation or John seventeen fifteen. John seventeen fifteen. Jesus prays on our behalf, and he says, "I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world." He says but to keep them from the evil one. To keep them from the evil one. We have the same phrase, to keep from. To keep from, clearly, John seventeen fifteen. it clearly means to protect from the devil. Not to take out of the world. To keep from means to protect. 
And I believe that that's the same interpretation in Revelation 3.10, that he will protect us from all of the punishments that God brings upon the evil world. Yes, uh, Revelation 3.10, when it says to test those who dwell upon the earth, that is a characteristic phrase in the book of Revelation, meaning those evil people of the world. When it says the whole world, he doesn't mean every person in the world, but the evil people in the whole world. Therefore, Christ will protect us from punishment, but he will punish the wicked world. Now verse 11, Revelation 3, 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take a crown. I am coming quickly. Christ comes quickly in a couple of senses. He comes quickly in the sense that our life is short and the day of judgment will come sooner than later in terms of our limited ability now to repent. We don't have lives that live for 200 or 1,000 years long. We have lives that are 70 or 80 years long if we have a normal life, or by accident, we might die sooner than that. Our time comes quickly in that we have to repent now, otherwise we'll be in the presence of God before we realize it. But when he says, I am coming quickly, he also means it in the sense of Second Peter chapter 3, and perhaps this is the primary sense. Second Peter chapter 3, the wicked world says, where is the promise of his coming? They mock and scorn the thought that Christ will return. They say, where is the promise? For ever since the Father slept, everything continues just as it did from the beginning of creation. They say, everything is going on normally. Nothing is changing. There's nothing cataclysmic happening. Christ is not going to return. You people are looking for it. And they mock and ridicule us for that. But Peter tells the church in 2 Peter 3 that God is not slow about his promises as some count slowness. From our perspective, it seems like a long time, but it's not slow and it's not long from God's perspective. And therefore, Jesus can say, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. He's coming quickly. He will come and the world will end and he will mete out to everyone according to what his works require him to receive. But what should we do? Verse 11, Revelation 3:11. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast. Cling on to. Don't let go of anything. Don't let go of anything. Hold on to the faith until the very end. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14 exhorts us to do the same thing. Hebrews 3 and verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are true partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. If we hold fast from beginning to the end, the beginning of our confession till the end, the consummation, when we see Christ, we hold fast, we are true believers. Therefore, it's necessary to be reminded of this fact that we have to hold on 
Not let go. Don't be distracted. Don't try to mix and mingle the world with the things of God. Because if we do that, then someone will take our crown away. He says in Revelation 3.11 that it's necessary to hold on in order that no one take your crown. The crown that we will receive at the end, according to James 1.12, is the crown of life, which we will receive in due time, after we have endured, after we have held fast until the very end. Then a reward comes, a crown of life, a golden crown of life, a crown of victory, a crown of kingship, a crown that we will have forever and ever. Now this crown is a spiritual crown, signifying the fact that we are victorious and we are going to reign as kings with Christ forever and ever. Verse 12, Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The overcomers will be a pillar in the temple of my God. They will be a fixed feature of the presence of God. They will be in the presence of God forever and ever. The pillar in the temple of my God signifies the fact that we will be there as a sturdy and fixed person and fixture in the presence of God forever because we will not go out from it anymore. We will not go here and there. We will always be there in the presence of God. He also promises, I will write upon him the name of my God. The name of God will be written upon us in the sense that we will always belong to God. He's telling us that we belong to God, he belongs to us. We belong to the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And another promise, we will have the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. The name of the city. The city Jerusalem is the holy city, and it's also the city of righteousness, this name, this privilege we will have, we will have perfect righteousness. We will have perfect holiness represented in this name of the new Jerusalem. This is what we will have in the sight of God, in the presence of God forever. Also, he says in verse 12, and my new name. Similar to Revelation 2.17 he says, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. In 3.12, my new name means the name that Christ gives to us as his adopted child. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I and the children that God has given me. This is our new name. We are adopted into the family of God. Jesus is our brother. We are his, uh, within his family, and we're also his children. We're both his brother, and we are his children in the sight of God. This is the privilege we have. Verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even all of these blessings that he just mentioned, will not be understood and will not be appreciated unless one has spiritual ears 
to hear what the Spirit says. We could hold out all of these blessings, all of these wonderful things, the promises of God to people again and again and again and again, but they will not receive it. They will not savor it. They will not want it and grasp for it until the Spirit opens their ears. But those who do have spiritual ears, those who truly are listening because God has opened their ears to listen, they will receive this. And when they hear these promises, it will be a delight to them. They will want it. They will revel in it. They will bask in it. They will anticipate it. They will think about it. They will hope in it. Those who have spiritual ears. This is the distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. The believer hears the promises of God and rejoices. The unbeliever hears the promises of God and he ridicules it. Now the church of Laodicea, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Jesus' identity is the Amen. The Amen is a term of confirmation, a term of confident confirmation in what has been said and what will be done. For example, in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20, Jesus is the yes and the amen of all the promises of God. He is the one who lends confirmation and credibility to everything God has said. He's also the faithful and true witness. He's faithful, faithful until the very end. Just as he was faithful and true till the very end, he is our model, he's our example, and we should be just like him. We should be confident in the promises of God, and we should be faithful and true to all the things of God as a witness until the very end. Jesus, too, calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. In this way, he reminds us of his power, of his sovereign power. He is the beginning of the creation of God. There are two ways we can take this, two valid ways we may take this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. One way is to take the word beginning to mean origin or first cause. Origin, first cause, or creator. The creator of the creation of God. He is the maker, the fashioner, the creator of all creation. This would be similar to Hebrews 1, 5 to 14, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, that Christ is the creator of all things. As well, John 1, 1 to 3. In this way, it would be a valid interpretation to say, beginning means not the first thing created, but the creator of all things. Another way to take this word beginning, according to the original language, is in Luke chapter 12, verse 11. The original word appears there in Luke 12, 11, and in the plural, it means rulers, a ruler. So in this way, if Christ calls himself the ruler of the creation of God, he is therefore the one who is sovereignly in control of it. He is the king of creation. He owns it all by virtue of his creation of it. And also, because he's the creator of it, he's the ruler of it. These two aspects 
are valid and, and proper ways to understand this phrase, the beginning of the creation. Now, the way we should not take it is the way that some cultists take it, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses. They take the beginning of the creation of God to mean that Jesus is the firstborn creation of God. He is Michael the archangel, the first and foremost creation of God. They take Jesus to be a created angel, the first angel created, an archangel, and then he, Jesus or Michael, created the rest of the world. However, that's not the way John the Apostle meant it. He did not mean Jesus was the first thing created. We know that that's not the case from John 1, 1 to 3, Hebrews 1, 5 to 14, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, and even in this letter, or yes, in this letter or book of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 17, Jesus calls himself the first and the last. He calls himself the first and the last. There aren't two firsts and two lasts. There's only one first and one last. The same in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus clearly, in the book of Revelation, identifies himself as the, the ultimate God, the one and only God, the supreme God, and therefore he could not be calling himself a created being in Revelation 3.14. Let's continue in verse 15. I know your deeds. Now, when Jesus says, I know your deeds, he's not only sovereign in terms of power, but now he's showing his sovereignty by his omniscience. In this case, with this Laodicean church, they had evil deeds. They were hypocrites. They were not following him faithfully. When he says in verse 15, I know your deeds, he describes what he means. That you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The city of Laodicea had two sources of water. For hot water, they had the hot springs of the city Hierapolis, and they would get water, hot water from there. Hot water often is used as a way to, to heal and to soothe. It has a useful purpose. Cold water for the city of Laodicea would come from the city Colossae, which had a cold stream. Cold water is used to refresh the weary, to uh, refresh us and, and brighten us up uh, after having uh, been parched. We drink cold water, and therefore we are rejuvenated. He says, I wish that you were either hot and useful that way, or cold and useful that way. But because you are lukewarm, you are tepid, you have this hedging kind of feel to yourself, you're not one way or the other doing God's will. I will spit you out of my mouth. I will vomit you. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to separate myself from you, he says. This kind of Jesus is the Jesus people hate. 
He says in verse 17, he identifies their sin. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. This is what they claim. They say they're rich, they're wealthy, they need nothing. They put their hope in riches instead of their hope in Christ and spiritual riches. They put their hope in earthly riches. But what happens to people who put their hope in earthly riches is that they don't realize their spiritual poverty. They don't realize their spiritual blindness. This is why he says, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus knows it's necessary to alert and to awaken people who put their hope in false things. They have a false confidence. They need to hear that they are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked people. They have nothing. They are corrupt. They have nothing to give to God. They cannot put their confidence in anything else, in anyone else, except Christ himself. This is the Jesus people hate. No one wants to hear that they are a sinner. Some people even think, and some people even act, as though calling somebody a sinner is a sin itself. But not according to Christ. According to Christ, we have to realize our wretchedness before we can be repaired. This is why he says in verse 18, he calls on them to be reconciled to God. He says, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Buy from me, not with monetary means, not with actual currency, not with with actual gold or possessions or land. He means it spiritually, just like Isaiah did in Isaiah 55.1. Without money and without cost, buy from me, spiritually speaking, buy from me gold refined by fire. According to 1 Peter 1.7, it is our faith that is tested by fire. And eventually, it will come forth as gold. It is faith that we need. Faith in Christ. And then we become rich. He says, Buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. How can we become rich? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. We become rich because Jesus became poor. He became poor in that he left the throne of glory in heaven to take upon human flesh, to die for our sins as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. This is how we become rich. We partake of his death by faith in him. Then we become spiritually rich, and that is the wealth, that's the richness that we actually need. We don't need earthly riches, we need heavenly riches. And we obtain white garments, and we can clothe ourselves. After we have received Christ by faith, we have white garments, not soiled garments, not filthy garments, 
white and clean because Christ's blood, Revelation 7:14, the blood of the lamb is reckoned to our account and though our account was black, his red blood overcomes the black and his red blood gives us white garments. That's the spiritual equation. Black plus red equals white. And then we can clothe ourselves and we will not have any nakedness. The shame of our nakedness will be covered. From the Garden of Eden, the absence of sin brought no shame for nakedness. But in Genesis chapter 3, the presence of sin brought shame upon our nakedness. Here, when we have our nakedness covered by Christ, not by fig leaves and not even by garments of skin, but ultimately by Christ himself, when he covers us by his righteousness, his holiness, we are truly covered and our shame is not revealed anymore. Verse 18, another analogy. He says that we need eye salve or ointment to anoint our eyes that you may see. Just as John chapter 9, Jesus made uh, from the ground an ointment to anoint the blind man who was blind from birth, that man was blind from birth, his physical eyes were opened, and later in John chapter 9, his spiritual eyes were opened. He was healed miraculously physically and then healed miraculously spiritually. In this same way, Jesus is the source of our sight, of our spiritual sight. We can see only if Jesus opens our eyes to see. The same, Deuteronomy 29.4, Until this day the Lord has not given you eyes to see. Well, if we plead with God and others pray for us, we pray to God, we ask God, Open our eyes that we might see. We see spiritually so that we embrace the spiritual truth. Verse 19. These seem to be harsh words. Words of someone who does not love the people he addresses. This is the natural response that people have. They don't want to hear these harsh and severe and tough words. They don't want to hear about tough love. But Jesus clarifies. In verse 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Jesus says, because he loves them, these people who are hearing the word of God, because he loves them, he reproves them, rebukes them, confronts them, and he disciplines them. He chastises them for the things that they're doing so that they repent. He wants them to be zealous, to be enthusiastic, be passionate about these things of, uh, the things of God and repent of sin. This is what was said in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Whom Jesus loves, he disciplines. He calls their sins 
to attention. He brings them to the surface so that they might realize it and turn away from sin, to be zealous and repent of their sin. This is the loving Christ. And those who represent Christ faithfully to people will do the same. If they truly love the people who hear them, they will call attention to their sin. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Because when repentance occurs, then forgiveness of sins occurs. Matthew twenty-four forty-six to 47 Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus said that when the gospel is preached, it is repentance for forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness if there's no repentance. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus is now standing at the door of those who hear. He's knocking and he wants the people who hear his voice to open the door. If they open the door, then Jesus will dine with him. He will have fellowship with him. He will have communion with him. John 14:23 John 14:23 Jesus spoke of the same thing there He said If anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me Whoever loves Christ will Keep his word, obey his word, and then the Father will love him, and the Father and the Son will come, and the Father and the Son will make their abode with him. They will come and live with him. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says it in terms of dining, eating. He says, I will dine with him, and he with me. There will be fellowship to the one who listens to the voice of Christ. If one does not listen to the voice of Christ, then there is no fellowship with Christ. Verse 21, Revelation 3:21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The overcomers will be those who reign with Christ. Just as the father gave to the son the privilege of reigning forever, the Son will give us that privilege to reign forever. We saw what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3, that we will judge the world and we will judge angels. We also see in Revelation 5, 10, that you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. We will reign upon the earth according to Revelation 5, 10. We will reign forever and ever. As well, Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life and reigned with Christ. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, also says, 
that if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. However, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Reigning with Christ is held out, and it is the promise of God for all those who overcome, will reign forever and ever. We will not be in subjugation. The world will. The demons will. They will be in subjugation. We will be in freedom. We will live as reigners and uh, conquerors forever and ever. Verse 22. He ends again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Only those who have been given spiritual ears will listen. Therefore, let's make sure we have spiritual ears. Let's pray that we have spiritual ears. Even as it says in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The opening of the eyes, the opening of the ears, has to come from God himself. Open my eyes, or in this case, open our ears that we may hear. This is what we should have. We should have these open ears, and we should pray for our loved ones to have open ears. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.